Oh man, well it is, it is uh, a good day to be here at Center Church. If you have a Bible, you can meet me in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. Um, last little uh, bit of good news that I have for you. Lots of good news today, lots of exciting things. Uh, if you've been around, you know that we've been in the process of acquiring a permanent church facility that, that we're really excited about. We did the Deep and Wide Initiative this past year to raise the funds for that. Well, good news, last Friday we officially closed and we own the building, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> And so up here uh, on the screen, uh, Pastor Justin and I are standing in what we currently own, which is a ski and snowboard store, uh, which is not that helpful for ministry, but it's kind of cool. And over the next couple weeks, our contractor, because of your generosity through the Deep and Wide Initiative, will get to work transforming what is currently a ski and snowboard store into our, the future home and hub of Center Church. And we call it a home and a hub for two reasons. It's a home because we believe the church is a spiritual family, and it's where we're going to gather. And it's a hub because we believe from there we are going to send missionaries out all over the world, okay? And so we are really excited about that. We are full speed ahead, and we will keep you guys up to date as uh, exciting things happen in that development, okay? But wanted to share that picture with you. All right, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. I got to be honest with you, today's miracle is weird, okay? It's just, it just is. I don't know how else to say it. We are going to look at an odd miracle in the gospel of Mark today. Here's what happens. A group of people bring a blind man to Jesus. Jesus spits in his face. The guy gets his sight back. All right, like there's no getting around it. That's what happens. That's weird, okay? Uh, it's weird because Jesus spits in the guy's face, and that's a strange thing to do. I mean, when was the last time you prayed this, Lord? I just want to feel your presence. Would you just sneeze in my face? You know, like, like I don't think you've prayed that in the last year, right? Like, it's a, it's a weird thing. So that's one of the reasons it's an odd miracle. The second reason it's an odd miracle is that this is the only instance in all the Gospels where Jesus heals someone gradually. It's the only place in all the Gospels that Jesus heals someone gradually. He touches this man the first time, and his sight is restored, but it's not very clear. It's kind of fuzzy. Then he touches him a second time, and his sight is totally restored. So the question is, what's going on? Like, was Jesus like having a bad day? You know, uh, you know, did he not spit enough the first time? Right? Why in the world does Jesus heal this man in the way that he did? Well, the, the reason is that Jesus' miracles often function as signs. They often function as signs that point us towards spiritual truth. So this is a real objective historical healing that happened, but it points us towards an important spiritual truth. You see, this healing is an illustration of the nature of salvation and sanctification in the Christian life. Okay, this miracle is an illustration of salvation and sanctification in the Christian life. The man went from being blind to being able to see in a moment when he encountered Jesus. That is a picture of salvation in the Christian life, but it took longer for the man's sight to become fully restored, to become clear. That illustrates sanctification. You see, faith begins in a moment but grows over a lifetime. Faith begins in a moment. You could say your faith begins in a moment but grows over a lifetime. And this text is going to help us understand the true nature of salvation and sanctification. Okay? Look at verse 22 with me. It says this. And they came to Bethsaida. So in verse 13, Jesus left down Manutha, he got in the boat with his disciples, and he sailed across the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 21, he arrived in Bethsaida, which was a fishing village on the northeastern coast of Galilee, which, fun fact, was the hometown of three of the disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. Now, I mention that to underscore the historical nature of Mark's gospel. You see, sometimes skeptics will say, oh, the Bible is just like Greek mythology. It's just a bunch of crazy made-up stories. But the gospel doesn't read that way. 
Mark is giving us historical points. He's saying he was in Dalmanutha, then he sailed to Bethsaida. Well, if you look at a map, you could do that. They were on the coast of Galilee, and this is a real place that three of the disciples were from, so it makes sense that Jesus would be going there. He might have been staying in one of their houses, okay? So Mark is always giving us these little, these little triggers to show us, hey, this isn't a made-up story. This isn't some sort of myth that I came up with. This is a real historically rooted event, okay? So they arrive in Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, we don't know who these people were. We're not given their names, but here's what we know about them. They had a very needy friend who they brought to Jesus and then begged him to heal. This man's life was radically transformed because someone brought him to Jesus. And I imagine the same is true in your life. If you're a Christian here today, it's probably because someone brought you to Jesus. Might have been your mom. It might have been a youth pastor. It might have been a friend at school. It might, you might be like my dad. It was a co-worker when he was working for the FBI in the 70s. One of his co-workers brought him to Jesus. And now my life is totally different because his friend took the time to bring him to Jesus and beg that Jesus would do something in my dad's life. You see, the truth is we all have friends like this. We all have friends who are far from God but close to us. And you can't change your friend. Did you know that? You also can't change your spouse. Did you know that? You also can't change your kids. Sorry. Like, you can't change anyone. Have you ever tried? Isn't it the most frustrating thing to try to change someone that you care about? It just doesn't work. But do you know what you can do? You can bring them to Jesus, and you can beg him to change them. You can invite your friend and intercede on their behalf. And that is what we're called to do. That's what we, in fact, have the privilege of doing, is we get to be the means by which the people that we love and care about get introduced to Jesus. This group of friends brought their needy friend to Jesus, and Jesus radically changes his life, and we can be the avenue of that in our friends' lives as well. So here's the question. Who do you need to invite to church? Right? Who do you need to invite to church? Who do you need to invite out to lunch? Who do you need to start interceding for? Who do you need to beg Jesus to change? Who do you need to maybe start interceding for again? You know who I'm talking about? Like, well, I prayed for them for a while, but that's a lost cause. And you're like, oh, man, that's not consistent with my theology. Dang it, Josh. Right? Who do you need to start praying for again? When we invite and intercede, God does some pretty amazing things in our lives. So that's what these guys did. They had a friend who was needy. They brought him to Jesus. Well, here's a, a good question to ask. Why did they bring him to Jesus? I mean, he's blind. Right? Like, I mean, why would you bring a blind man to Jesus? Well, this is a bit of a Sunday school answer, but because Jesus was a healer. Right? Jesus had a three-part ministry. He was a preacher, a teacher, and a healer. Everywhere he went, he did those three things in that order. He preached first, then he would teach, and then he would heal. Now, healing was not the primary thing that Jesus did in his ministry, but it was a significant thing that he did in his ministry. And you might ask the question, why did Jesus heal? You ever ask that question? Why did he do it so much? He didn't heal everyone, so why did he heal anyone? Well, there's three big reasons that Jesus healed. Number one was because of his compassion. Okay, Jesus has compassion. When Jesus sees suffering, when Jesus sees grief, it moves him to action. As a point of application, that's true in your life. Did you know that? When you are grieving, when you are suffering, it draws Jesus' heart towards you. Have you ever been in a season that was really tragic and it just felt like everything was dark? But maybe in that season, you felt the closeness of Christ in a really unique way. Do you know why that is? It's because Jesus' heart moves towards his people in their suffering. So the first reason that Jesus healed was because of his compassion. The second reason Jesus healed was to demonstrate his authority. Jesus wandered around saying things like this, 
I'm God. <laughs> like, it's a pretty big claim. So his ability to supernaturally heal backed up his claim to divinity. That's the second reason. And then the third reason that he would heal is he would often heal to provide concrete examples of spiritual truth. He would, he would heal as an illustration of something that he was teaching. And that is the instance in this, uh, that, is, that is the case in this instance. He's going to use this as an illustration for a spiritual truth that we're going to learn. Verse 23, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So Jesus met this man in the village, in the, in the hustle and bustle of Main Street. All this group of friends brought him, and everything's crazy, and people running around. It feels like your life, right? Like everything's noisy, work is crazy, the kids are up when they shouldn't be, right? It's just like crazy. So what does Jesus do? Man, he takes this guy by the hand, he stops what he's doing, and he takes him out of the village where it's quiet and where he can deal with this man one-on-one. Did you know that Jesus is massively personal with you? I mean, all throughout his ministry, Jesus had a ministry to the crowds, but he's always, he's always having these intimate one-on-one conversations with people. Think about John chapter 4, when Jesus goes to the well in Samaria, and he has this, man, personalized conversation with the woman at the well, and he speaks to some of the deepest parts of her life, and he radically transforms her. That's very personal. Think about when uh, Jesus restored Peter after Peter denied him. You know that Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Have you ever wondered why that was? It's because Jesus asked him three times because Peter denied him three times. He said, Peter, I'm restoring you to the degree that you denied me. What is that? That's extraordinarily personal. That's what Jesus is in your life. Jesus deals with us in a very intimate and personal way. Here's what this means. It means you are never a number on a spreadsheet to the Lord. You are never a cog in the machine. You may not feel seen or known by the world, but you are seen and known by the Lord. And that's good news. But can I be honest with you? It's also challenging. Because that means you can't know Jesus from a distance. You can't know Jesus through someone else. Did you know that? You can't know Jesus through your mom. You can't know Jesus through your pastor. You can't know Jesus through that religious grandparent that you have. You can't know Jesus from a distance. Jesus comes right up to us. He leads us out of the village, and he wants to deal with us personally and one-on-one. You see, what the Bible teaches us again and again is that the only faith that saves is a personal faith. It's when you and I personally reckon and wrestle with the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we repent and believe personally. You see, you cannot inherit faith from anyone else. You have to have a personal faith in Christ. Verse 23b. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Okay, let's have an honest moment in church. This is weird. All right? Jesus spits in this guy's face. Like, that's weird. You need to let this be weird. We're like, no, it's the Lord was doing it. He spit in his face, okay? Like, he spit in his face. I love reading commentaries on things like this. They're like, well, the spit represents. I'm like, he spit in his eyes, you know? Have you ever had anybody spit in your eyes? You ever had a kid sneeze in your eyes? Yeah, you have. It's Mother's Day. Let's have an honest moment. Can I be honest with you? It's not awesome. It is not awesome to have someone sneeze in your face. It's just not. So this is weird for that reason. Jesus spits in this guy's face. Um, but at a deeper level, this is, this is very odd because everywhere else in the Bible where spitting is mentioned, and particularly where spitting in someone's face is mentioned, it's horrible. It's an act of shame and derision every single time except for this case. It's very strange. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus took something shameful and he redeemed it. 
Jesus took something very shameful and he redeemed it. He took what was shameful and turned it into an avenue of God's power. Here's the truth. We all have areas of our life that we're ashamed of. We do. We all have areas of life that we're ashamed of. We call them wounds. The things that make us feel weak, vulnerable, and insufficient. We want to hide our wounds. Jesus wants to heal our wounds. We want to act like we've got it all together and we don't have any issues. Jesus wants to bring those things out in the light, and he wants to redeem what makes us feel ashamed. Jesus wants to turn your wounds into scars. You know what a scar is? A scar is a wound that has been healed. A scar is a wound that now has a testimony. Isn't that what makes testimonies powerful? Some guy gets up, and he starts talking about a wound he had. He's like, man, I was broken. I was addicted. I was angry. I was absent. But Jesus changed me, and it took time. And I'm not a finished product, but I'm different now than I was. That wound has been healed. And you hear that, and you know what you think? You think, well, if God can heal that guy, like maybe God can do that in my life. You see, what we want to do is we want to hide our wounds, especially in the church, and we want to act like we've all got it all together, and we just, we just float from one quiet time to the next, and we're so put together. And Jesus is like, you can stop. You can stop hiding because what I want to do is I want to come into that area of your life where you feel most broken and you feel most insufficient and you're most ashamed and I want to heal it and then I want to show other people that they can be healed too through your testimony. So in this moment, Jesus takes something that was just shameful everywhere else in the Bible, everywhere else in that culture, and he redeems it and he makes it the avenue of God's power in this man's life. Verse 24, and the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus touches this man, and, and sure enough, this man can see. And for the first time in a very long time, or maybe for the first time ever, this man sees color. And he sees light and contrast. And he sees people. He recovered his sight. The man could see, and he did see, but what the text tells us is that he saw indistinctly. Everything was fuzzy. The people he saw looked like trees walking around. He couldn't really make out what they were. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and then when he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So Jesus lays his hands on this man the second time, and what was previously fuzzy became sharp. What was once indistinct and unclear became clear and crisp. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And that's the story. Now, Luke chapter 7, verse 21, tells us that Jesus healed many blind men and blind women in his ministry. Okay, did this a lot. So, healing a blind person was not that unique for Jesus's ministry. But this miracle is unique because of how Jesus healed this man. Usually, Jesus just touched the man, touched the woman, the sight was totally restored. This is the only example of a gradual healing in all of the Gospels. So why did Jesus do it this way? Why did he heal him progressively? Well, because this miracle functions as a sign on two levels, okay, on two levels. On the first level, it illustrates what is about to happen in the life of Jesus' disciples, Okay, in the section right after this, Peter, for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark, is going to confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's going to have his eyes opened. And Jesus actually says, man, this was not revealed to you by man, this was revealed to you by the Father. What is that? 
Jesus touching Peter's eyes and Peter going from blind to being able to see. But a few verses later, Peter is going to rebuke Jesus. By the way, not a great idea. Okay, not a great idea to rebuke Jesus. Because Jesus is going to say, I'm the Messiah, I must go and suffer for the sins of the people. And Peter says, never, Lord, never will you die. You're going to be a conquering Messiah who takes down Rome. What, what was going on? You see, Peter saw, but he didn't see all the way. You understand? He could see that Jesus was the Messiah, but he, he just, it was fuzzy. He didn't understand a lot about what it meant to be the Messiah. And it would take many years for Peter's vision to become clearer and clearer until he understood what it meant to follow a crucified and resurrected Savior. So on one level, this man in Bethsaida, this blind man that is healed, represents what's about to happen in the life of Jesus' disciples. And yet on a second level, this represents what happens in all of our lives. This represents what happens in all of our lives. Man, at the, the, the scriptures teach us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the natural state of man and woman is what's called spiritual blindness. That we are born not being able to see God, not being able to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens in salvation is that Jesus touches your eyes, removes the scales, and for the first time, you see God clearly. And you say, I'm, I've been an enemy of God, I need to be saved, I want to repent and believe and trust in him. And some of you remember what it was like that first week that you became a Christian. This happened for me. I, I grew up around the church, but it wasn't until I was 13 that I was saved. So you might say that I was in church, but not in Christ. So I knew a lot about the Bible. I knew a lot of answers, but I didn't know Christ personally as my Savior. And that changed when I was 13 because of two reasons. Number one, my family started going to a church where the pastor preached the gospel clearly. So he helped me understand the categories of sin and grace and repentance and faith and what personal salvation meant. And number two, I started to be overwhelmed by my sin. I simply couldn't manage my sin anymore. And in that season of my life, I realized I'm not a good guy on God's team. I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. And I remember that two-week period because everything seemed different to me. All of a sudden, I was thinking about God and myself and other people in a totally different way. And I wasn't instantly holy, but I had a new desire. I had a new desire to put sin to death and to walk in godliness. And I wonder if you have had an experience like that. But it's almost like you had scales on your eyes, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit gives you sight to see. And we sing this in one of our favorite hymns, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, just like this man in Bethsaida who could not give himself sight, you cannot give yourself spiritual sight. Let me ask you, if this man got on a keto diet, would it have made any difference? No. If he, if he, would, have, if he would have changed his environment, moved to a different town, right? Got on a really good physical exercise routine. Nothing was going to change this man. Nothing was going to restore his sight except the touch of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, in the same way, no amount of moral reform, no amount of environmental change, no amount of behavior modification can restore your spiritual sight. The only way that you get spiritual sight is when the Lord Jesus Christ touches you and restores it. And that's what happened to me when I was 13. That's what can happen to you if it hasn't happened before. The good news of the gospel is that anyone can have their sight restored through repentance and faith. And the means by which God restores spiritual sight is the proclamation of the gospel. So when the gospel is proclaimed and you hear in faith, God does a miracle in your life and all of a sudden you see for the first time. Praise the Lord. Some of you have experienced that recently. 
So this man in Bethsaida illustrates that, but if it's just that, why the second healing? Why the second touch? Well, because it's not just about salvation, it's also about sanctification. So sanctification is a word that theologians use to describe your growth in practical holiness, your growth in understanding who God is and what it means to be one of his people. And here's what this text is teaching us. Your faith begins in a moment, but it grows over a lifetime. And it takes a lifetime to see Christ and to see God in his glory more and more clearly. So this miracle illustrates both of those things. But to be very honest with you, salvation and sanctification are two of the most misunderstood doctrines in the Bible. And you run into all sorts of issues when you misunderstand these or when you confuse these or when you don't understand how they work. And so what I want to do is I just want to double click on these two doctrines. And I want to give you a robust biblical understanding of what salvation is and what sanctification is and why in the world that matters in your life today. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Number one, what is salvation? What is salvation? Well, the theme of salvation, or what you might say rescue, that's kind of the the idea of salvation, is you're being rescued from something, runs from cover to cover in the Bible. And I'll show you that in just a minute. But before I do, I want to make an observation. And here's the observation. Salvation isn't just a biblical concept. It shows up in everyone. It shows up in absolutely everyone. At the street level, we all have a practical hell and a practical savior. Okay, at the street level, every single person, whether you're Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or agnostic or an atheist or secular, no matter who you are, you have a practical hell and you have a practical savior. For example, if hell for you is being overweight, then your savior is working out. If hell for you is being poor, then your savior is a high-paying job. If hell for you is loneliness, then your Savior is a relationship. If hell is sexual restraint, then your Savior is sexual expression. If hell is insignificance, then your Savior is achievement. Man, every single one of us has a practical hell and a practical Savior. The question is not, do you need to be saved from something? The question is, what do you think you need to be saved from? What do you think you need to be saved from, and who can save you from it? What is the main problem in your life, and who can deliver you from that problem? That's the question that we're wrestling with, and we all have to wrestle with it. And how we answer that question will shape the trajectory of our lives. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that our main problem is God's problem with us. That our main problem is God's problem with us. That as a consequence of our rebellion against him, We stand under his wrath, and we are headed for an eternity separated from him in hell. So the Bible says what we need to be rescued from is hell, but more than that, we need to be rescued from the power of sin in our lives. So we need to be rescued from the penalty of sin, which is hell, but we also need to be rescued from the power of sin in our lives that, man, we can't break free from on our own. It's how Paul says in Romans 7, man, I keep doing what I don't want to do. Ever been there? And I feel like I have this desire to live one way, to be one way. I want to be this kind of dad and this kind of husband and this kind of student and this kind of friend, and yet I'm not. What's going on? That's the power of sin in your life. So we need to be delivered from the penalty of sin in hell, but also the power of sin in our daily lives. And the scriptures say that Christ is the one who can rescue you from that. That Jesus is the one who can save you from what you cannot save yourself from. Friends, this is very important to understand. Christianity is a rescue religion, not an escape religion. 
Christianity is a rescue religion, not an escape religion. Here's how every other religion works. Here's a bunch of rules, and if you follow them, you can escape. You can escape from judgment and make it into hell. I mean, it doesn't matter your flavor, right? It could be the five pillars of Islam. It could be the eightfold path of Buddhism. It could be the Book of Mormon. It could be your secular version of it. Everyone has a list. Here, do this well enough, and you can escape. But Christianity says it's never going to work. You can't escape. What you need is to be rescued. Christianity is a rescue religion, not an escape religion. And you could say that the Bible is one long rescue story. It is one long rescue story. The first mention of salvation is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 15. See, after Adam and Eve rebelled and fell under divine judgment, God promised a champion. He promised a rescuer who would defeat Satan and bring restoration. And God's promise of salvation, of a rescuer, of a champion who would come, culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament is building to the arrival of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why the Gospel of Matthew opens with this long genealogy? Like, if you were an editor, you'd be like, that's a bad way to start a book. You don't start with the, you don't start with the Hebrew phone book, right? Like, like, you start with, like, a fun story. Why does it start that way? Because it's showing you this has always been the plan. This has always been what the Bible has been about. From all the way back to Abraham, it's been about getting to Jesus. It's been about getting to the champion who could deliver us and rescue us from what we couldn't rescue ourselves from. So the Bible is one long rescue story, and this is what's amazing and profound and deep. Every member of the Trinity is involved. Okay, so the Bible teaches that God is, is one God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Did you know that every member of the Trinity is involved in your rescue? You see, God the Father is the architect of your rescue. We're told that before the foundation of the earth, that God the Father is the one who devised this rescue plan. So I have good news for you. God the Father wants you in his family. You see, sometimes we have this idea that like Jesus is the one that's our Savior, and God the Father's mad at us. And it's like, I like Jesus, I'm not sure about God the Father, but what we learn is from, it's God the Father's idea. It was his plan to rescue you, so he's the architect of your salvation. God the Son is the one who accomplished your salvation. He took on flesh as Jesus Christ, he came to earth, he lived a perfect and righteous life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, then he rose again three days later. So Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation. And then God the Holy Spirit is the one who applies your salvation. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. And the Holy Spirit bears witness in your spirit that Jesus is the Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who removes the scales from your eyes so that you can see your rescuer and repent and believe. Guys, the entirety of the Godhead is involved in your salvation. That is good news. That is profoundly good news. Your salvation is a big deal. So the Bible is one long rescue story. The entire Godhead is involved. And here's another thing that's amazing. Your salvation is multidimensional. Okay, multidimensional. Don't think multiverse, okay? Not Spider-Verse stuff, but like multidimensional. Think of like about a diamond. If you ever take a diamond and you hold it up in a really bright light, what you'll notice is that there's all these different faces of a diamond. And each one of them has its own brilliance and beauty, and you kind of turn it, you fan it, you see all these different faces of the diamond. That is what biblical salvation is like. Biblical salvation is a beautiful, profound diamond that has all these different dimensions. 
So what I want to do is just for a second is I want to hold it up to the light. I want to hold your salvation, if you're a Christian, up to the light. You might not know that your salvation had all these different facets. You see, in redemption, you are liberated from the bondage of sin. Sin no longer holds power over you. What that means is you don't have to sin anymore. Sin no longer has dominion. It is no longer your master. In redemption, the bondage has been broken. The chains have been ripped off. That is the redemption involved in your salvation. In forgiveness, your debt is canceled. You had a sin debt that you could never repay. And on the cross, do you know what Jesus did with your sin debt? I love this. It's from Colossians chapter 2. It says that Jesus took your record of debt over to the cross and nailed it to the cross. He said, you don't have to pay this. It's already been paid. Tetelestai, it is finished. You are forgiven. That's the forgiveness of your redemption. In justification, the judge of all the earth looks at you, evaluates the facts of your case, then takes into consideration Jesus, brings the eternal gavel of judgment down and says, not guilty, innocent, justified, free to go. In adoption, you become a child of God. You were once an orphan of this world. You didn't have a home. You were in exile. You had nowhere to lay your head, and in adoption, God the Father came and brought you into his family as an eternal son or daughter, and he says, I have a home waiting for you where there are many rooms, and if it were not so, why would I tell you I went to prepare a place? And you may not have a great earthly family. Your earthly home may not be a place of safety and refuge, but you have a perfect heavenly father. And you have a great older brother named Jesus Christ who has brought you into your spiritual family, the church, and is bringing you home to your perfect home, the home that you've always longed for, called the new heavens and the new earth. Man, your salvation is rich. I could go on and on. That's four facets of your salvation. Your salvation is rich. It is beautiful. It is one of the dominant doctrines in all of the scriptures. That being the case, I want to just draw out two implications. If all this is true about salvation, let me give two implications practically for this. Letter A, this is all true. It means Jesus is the only means of salvation. Jesus is the only means of salvation. The Bible says that Jesus is the only rescuer, that there are no other options. There's a couple very clear verses about this. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty explicit. I'm the only way. Peter affirmed that in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, the gospel is incredibly exclusive, right? It is as exclusive and narrow as the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, it's wonderfully inclusive. How do I mean? Well, the gospel says the only way you can be rescued is through Jesus Christ, but anyone can be rescued. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female, rich or poor, educated, not educated, what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your moral background is. It doesn't matter what last weekend was like. Anyone who will repent and trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. So the gospel is at the same time a very exclusive message and yet a wonderfully inclusive message. So we have these two verses that are very clear that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But even if we didn't have those verses, we would know that. Do you know why? Because the Bible would make no sense if there were multiple ways to God. Imagine how ridiculous the entire Bible would be if there were like six or seven different ways up the mountain. 
Like, it just, it just feel like way over the top. Like, if there were more than one way to get to God, if there were multiple ways to be rescued, then the incarnation, the perfect life, the gruesome death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ would be utterly superfluous. It just would. It would be unnecessary. It'd be like, hey, thanks for doing that, but actually there were like these four or five other ways that we could do it too. Paul said as much in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. He said, guys, if we could save ourselves through moral improvement, then Christ died for no purpose. I think most people are trying to be respectful and kind when they say, hey, like there are many ways to God. But when you understand what Jesus did, you realize it is one of the most disrespectful things you could say to him to affirm that. Like, I understand if you're here and you're, you're asking questions and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, we want you to keep coming and we want you to keep asking questions. But if you're here, if you're here and you're a Christian, don't you dare say there are many ways to God. It is one of the most disrespectful things you can say to your Savior. Jesus, thanks for all you did, but there are four other options. It's, it's profoundly disrespectful to him. To act like what he did is just one way that we could be rescued. Guys, it's not. Here's the good news. Jesus cares so much about you that he was willing to go through all that. Do you know why? Because it was the only way to rescue you. And that's how valuable you are to him. That's how valuable your friends are to him, that he was willing to come. But let's not dilute the gospel and let's not disrespect our Lord and Savior by saying, well, he's like one of six or seven paths up the mountain. The entire Bible doesn't make sense if that's true. I know it's hard in our culture to affirm that, but we have to hold true to what the scriptures say. All right, that's implication one. Jesus is the only means of salvation. Here's implication two. Biblical salvation impacts everything. You see, when you experience salvation, when you're rescued, it has massive spiritual, relational, psychological, and emotional implications in your life. It's no longer business as usual. You can't reduce biblical salvation to just raising your hand in a service or praying a prayer with your friend. Salvation can certainly start in those ways, but it has to impact everything about your life. Think about this blind man. Everything about his life changed this day, right? His, his relationships, his family, his career options, everything changed because his sight was restored. Well, in the same way, when you are saved, when you become a Christian, everything changes. Think about a, a man in our church that um, came to faith in Christ back in February. We got to baptize him a few months ago. He's, a, he's, he's married, he's got children, he's in his 40s, he's established in his career, and yet all of a sudden he is thinking about everything differently. He's a different husband than he used to be. He's a different father, he's a different friend. All of a sudden he has a concern for the souls of his coworkers that he never had before. Why? Because salvation changes everything. Has your salvation changed everything? Has your relationship with Christ made its way into every area of your life, or is it compartmentalized into Sunday evenings? This blind man could not compartmentalize his new sight to Sunday evenings at 4 o'clock. Right? It impacted everything about his life, and biblical salvation is intended to impact everything about our lives as well. And so that's what salvation is. It is a beautiful, wonderful doctrine. So what about sanctification? What is sanctification? Well, I'm going to give you two definitions. You might write these down. This is helpful. Positional sanctification refers to the set-apart status that you have in Christ as a result of your union with him. Okay, in Christ you are sanctified. God has set you apart. That has been accomplished by God for you. That's positional sanctification. Progressive sanctification refers to the process of growing in practical holiness as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You see the difference? 
One is an identity. You've been set apart by God. The other is a, is a verb. It's a process. It's an action. It's important to understand that the imperatives of Scripture, what you should do, always rest upon the indicatives of Scripture, what is true of you. You see, in sanctification, you strive to become what you already are in Christ. You strive to become what you already are in Christ. Now, there are some key differences between salvation and sanctification I want to point out. Salvation happens in a moment. Sanctification happens over a lifetime. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. You are going to fall a lot of times in your quest to become more like Christ. But what what sanctification is about is it's about getting back up. So salvation happens in a moment. Sanctification happens over a lifetime. Second, salvation is is accomplished entirely by God. It's what theologians call monergistic. That means there's only one person doing everything, God. Sanctification is a partnership between you and the Holy Spirit. Theologians call it synergistic, two people working together. Why is this important? Well, sometimes people will say to me, Man, I'm just asking God to remove this sin from my life, which is a good prayer to pray, as long as you are also actively putting that sin to death. Sometimes I think that's a smokescreen to be like, I don't actually want to repent of this sin, so I'm just going to pray, and if God wants it out of my life, he's just going to make me not want to do it anymore. And it's just a misunderstanding of how sanctification works. Salvation is all of God. Sanctification is a partnership. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says it this way. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You. For it is God who works in you. God, right? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's both and. So what does sanctification look like practically in your life? Well, it involves a movement away from some things and a movement towards other things. You put some things to death and you bring other things to life. There's a fleeing and a pursuing. There's a no and a yes. Some people get really bent out of shape about all the no's in Scripture, and there are a lot of no's, but the no's in Scripture free you to the better yes. The no's in Scripture free you to the better yes. Think about gardening. I say no to weeds and rocks, so I remove those so I can say yes to flowers and grass. Think about personal fitness. You say no to Taco Bell. You say no to the Doritos Cheesy Gordita Crunch. So you can say yes to personal fitness. Or think about marriage. I say yes to pursuing my wife and being faithful to her. And I say no to flirting with other women. You see, when you become a Christian, your life changes. There are certain things about your that used to be a part of your life that are not part of your life anymore. It is no longer appropriate for them to be there. There are things that you now kill, that you remove, that don't belong. Why? Because you won't revel in what your king bled out to destroy. You will not revel in something that your king bled out to destroy. That is sanctification, the lifelong process of becoming more practically holy. And you might hear that and think, that sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like a chore, it sounds like a burden, it sounds like a crushing weight. And it is. If you have ever tried to follow Jesus and really grow in holiness, you know just how hard it is. It is hard work, but friends, it's holy work. It's the kind of work that you do over 40 years, and then you look back and say, that was a life well lived. I bet you want to be a good dad. I bet you want to have a strong marriage. 
I bet you want to build meaningful Christian relationships. I bet you want to make a difference in our community and around the world. Do you know how you do that? Sanctification. Daily, boring, persistent sanctification. What one theologian called long obedience in the same direction. But in the midst of an exhausting world, and you're, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're weary, right? You, you've, you've got a lot of things going on in your life. Where do we find the energy to do this? Where do you find the motivation and the energy to get up tomorrow and pull the weeds of sin and selfishness out of the garden of your life? Well, I was struck by something I read this week that I want to share with you. In commenting on this passage, one writer said this, the important theological point about this miracle isn't how difficult it was for Jesus to heal this man. The important point is that Jesus didn't desist until the man was completely healed. Jesus touched the man's eyes as many times as was necessary to restore his sight. And Jesus will do the same thing for you. He will go on and on ministering to you in this pilgrimage called life until you reach the heavenly city and see him face to face. Friends, Jesus closed his eyes in death so that your eyes could be opened in spiritual life. And when you see that, when that truth centers into your heart and settles, it motivates you to get back up when you've fallen seven times, to repent of that sin again, and to persist in becoming what you already are, Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you persist in ministering to us until we become like you. I thank you that for every believer here, you brought us from death to life. We were once blind and now we can see. I thank you that for every non-believer here, that that can happen for them. And Lord, the gospel is the only way, but it is available to all who repent and believe. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that loves and delights in the glory of salvation. That we would never become dull to its wonder, and that it would motivate us every day to say yes to you and to say no to this world, to say yes to righteousness and no to wickedness, that we could look back after 40 years and say that is a life well lived. So Lord, give us the faith and give us the endurance to glorify you in this pilgrimage that we call life. We pray all this in your name.